Welcome to The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want the truth about having a healthy, happy, strong body. Remember, your body was meant to move. Now here's your host, Stephen Sashen. What shoes did Jesus wear? Or Moses? Or Muhammad? Or Buddha? Well, we're going to take a look at that in today's episode of The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting with the feet first, because those things are your foundation. We explore the propaganda, the mythology, the outright lies sometimes that people have told you about what it takes to run or walk or hike or do yoga or crossfit or whatever you like to do for fun and to do it enjoyably and efficiently and effectively. And did I mention enjoyably? Yes, I know I did. But that's the most important part. If it ain't fun, do something different till it is. I'm Stephen Sashen from ZeroShoes.com, your host of the Movement Movement Podcast, where we're creating a movement about natural movement. Natural movement, we're trying to help people rediscover that it's the obvious, better, healthy choice the way natural food is. And by creating a movement, well, that involves you. And what that means is simply, if you get the ideas of what we're doing here, if you like them, if you want to spread them, please do. Go to jointhemovementmovement.com. That's www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You'll find all the previous episodes. You'll find ways that you can share the content. You'll find places that you can engage with us on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or on our blog or all these other places. And of course, you can find the podcast, you know, wherever you find podcasts. So the simple thing, also, you know, subscribe, comment, like, etc. In short, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. Okay, so before we jump into the shoes that Moses or Buddha or Muhammad or whomever else wore, let's do the simplest little foot exercise we can. I haven't done this one before and I can't believe it. It's really easy. Just spread your toes as far as you can spread them. Just try to open them up wide, okay, and then crunch them up as much as you can crunch them. And like crunch, 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 and even punk your toes a little and crunch the arch a little bit. And now relax. And now spread them again. Uh, as wide as you can. See if you can make it a little wider this time. Try and really pay attention to that pinky toe. And crunch them up. Crunch, 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 scrunch, crunch. And now open them up. And now relax. And just from that little thing, see how your feet feel different. You're feeling a little more sensation, a little more mobility. You're feeling the blood flowing in there. If you want, walk around and see what's different after you scrunch and open and scrunch and open. Something you can do all the time to really just start working on getting your toes to move and bend and flex the way they're supposed to. All right. So before I jump into the shoes that Jesus or Moses or Buddha would wear or Muhammad would wear, let me tell you why we're having this conversation. The video that I posted about how to find comfortable shoes, which if you haven't seen it, is zeroshoes.com slash comfy, got some interesting responses from some people basically saying that I had my head up my butt and that I didn't know what I was talking about. And there was no proof that natural movement or barefoot running actually is what they pointed out was better than running in shoes. Well, that was an interesting comment to begin with because that whole video that I made doesn't really talk about barefoot running. It just talks about natural movement. But people equate natural movement and barefoot with barefoot running sometimes. And so the question came up, you know, well, where's the proof? Oh my gosh. All right. So this is a fun one. First, let's start with a simple thing. Boy, how do I want to do this? All right. Let's do it this way. Let's talk about Buddha and Muhammad and Jesus and Moses and Zoroaster and Odin and Zeus and the pharaohs and whomever else we can think of. And there's a whole line of study called religious archaeology. I was at a lecture a while ago with a guy who's a religious archaeologist. And what they do, religious archaeologists, is they try to find the evidence for the religious stories that we've been told, that we've read, that we believe. 
Sometimes we don't believe them and they're looking for that too, to see if it's true or not true. Sometimes they're looking for just facts about things that were in books. Sometimes they're looking for the actual people that are featured in these books. But the thing that was really interesting is that there's two possibilities in religious archaeology. One is that you find actual evidence. So let's use the pharaohs, for example. What shoes did they wear? Well, we can pretty much guess with a high degree of certainty because of two things. One, the hieroglyphs show people sometimes barefoot, sometimes in sandals, sometimes in shoes. And of course, in the pyramids and in tombs, we sometimes find actual footwear. And you can assume that if they were buried with the footwear, they probably wore it at least sometimes. So that one's easy. There's actual data information that you can find that points directly to the question you're trying to answer. Well, what if you don't have that? This is where it got interesting in this lecture. This archaeologist was describing how you can't find certain kinds of information. Like, you know, let's just use the existence of any of our religious figures. Any of them. I'm not trying to, you know, pick it out. And I'm not saying they did or didn't exist. But here's what we will say. There's nobody who's got a selfie with Buddha. Or no one has a, you know, there's not a self-portrait painted by Jesus. Or there's not a whole bunch of stuff that says Muhammad was here with, you know, pictures that are, you know, chiseled into the rock of a guy that looks like we might think of Muhammad. Or again, Zoroaster or Odin or Zeus or any of these. So when you don't have explicit physical evidence, this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about what's written in what are referred to as holy books. We're talking about physical archaeological evidence. If you don't have that, this guy was saying, what you look for is information and evidence, physical stuff that's all pointing in the same direction. It's all leading you to an obvious conclusion, even if you don't have the explicit physical data that would support that conclusion. You can get a really good idea if everything's pointing, basically imagine the outside of a circle and a bunch of points on the circle. If everything's pointing into the center, that's a, or a whole lot of things are pointing into the center. That's very different than if everything's pointing in completely different directions, which might suggest that the story or the person involved in the story, you know, may not be what we think it is. Now, I'm not trying to make religious statements. I'm not trying to step on anyone's beliefs or anything. I'm just trying to point out again, with religious archaeology, <laughs> the two ways that these guys try to look for information is to find actual physical information or to find a whole bunch of physical information that points basically in the same direction. All right. So what does that have to do with what shoes these guys were wearing? Well, nothing really, because it's not about the shoes. It's not about what they were wearing. It's about how we think about looking for information to prove things that we do believe or that we don't believe or that we want to find out if we should or shouldn't believe them. And that brings us back to comfy shoes, barefoot running, and the research, the proof that, well, basically what I say is that natural movement is better. I mean, that's a simple one. Is it better to let your feet do what they seem to be built to do, bend and flex and move and feel, or not? Is it better to walk or run or hike in as close to a natural condition as possible, which might mean barefoot or it might mean in a pair of shoes that let you move as if you were barefoot with a little protection? So this is the really fun part in my argument with this guy or discussion with this guy. It depends on your opinion, depends on, well, I was going to say how obnoxious you found my responses. They thought I was merely being condescending and arrogant, I think it was. And I, my point about the arrogance was, if I'm right, I'm not necessarily arrogant. You might just not like the way I presented things. I might be arrogant. I don't know. That's not either neither here nor there. But when I, when I asked about the arrogance part, the response was, well, I have a lot of certainty 
that natural movement is better and that running in something minimalist or running with natural movement is better. Well, yeah, I have a lot of certainty, but it didn't come from just an opinion. It didn't come from just something off the top of my brain. It didn't come from just a few bits of information that are anecdotal from people that I've never met before. It's come from now 13 years of a very deep dive into this thing where what I've discovered, and it's not just me, what many of us have found is that all of those points on the circle are kind of pointing into the center, but there's definitely something in the center that's missing. So let's chat about that. In the scientific world, the gold standard for studies is a double-blind placebo-controlled study. I'm sure most of you know what that is. If you don't, it's really simple. The person who's being studied and the person running the study, neither of them know if the person being studied is getting something that should make a difference or a placebo, something that's not making a difference. So the double-blind, no one knows who's getting what, either the person being studied or the person running the study. The placebo-controlled part is what we don't know is, is someone getting an active agent or a non-active agent? Okay, pretty straightforward. Well, not surprisingly, we can't do a double-blind placebo-controlled study about footwear. It's pretty obvious what you are or aren't wearing. It's pretty obvious if something's letting your foot move or squeezing your toes or elevating your heel or having a bunch of cushioning or having no cushioning. I mean, there's just really no way to tell. So that's out of the picture. So what else can you do? Well, the gold standard in this case would be to take a bunch of groups of random people and assign them to different kinds of footwear. They know what they're wearing. And you might also want to assign instruction or no instruction. Like if you're going to switch to have someone or have one group of people running barefoot, you might want to give them instruction about how to do that. Or maybe you wouldn't give them instruction and just see what happens naturally. Same thing with a pair of minimalist shoes. Same thing with a pair of maximalist shoes. But what you want to do is have people make a transition, explore what happens in that transition, whether they have instruction or not. Again, two different ways of looking at the study. See what kind of issues come up. See what kind of issues change over time. And you have to have in advance some specific things that you're looking for. Do you want to look at injury rates? And if so, what injuries are you going to look for? What constitutes an injury? What constitutes getting over an injury? So there's a lot of things that you might look at regarding the injury. You might just want to look at knee osteoarthritis. This is a really interesting thing to look at is you might have a group of people that has knee osteoarthritis and see what happens to them if they change. You might just want to look at follow people over time and see if who develops knee osteoarthritis. And I'm going to try and remember to come back to that in particular, because that's a really, really interesting one. But if I don't, just put something in the comments or send me an email, and I'll definitely address that again. What else we might want to study? You might want to study performance. You might want to see who gets faster or slower or stays the same. You might want to look at muscle activation and see what changes, whether people start using their glutes more or less, or their Achilles more or less, or their calves more or less etc. You might look at other kinds of injuries, plantar fasciitis. You might look and see how many people get it, how many people get rid of it, etc. So you get the idea that ideally you want to have, when you design the study, you want to know what you're examining in advance. You don't want to just take a bunch of people, put them in some new shoe, and then just see what happens because it's way too easy just to cherry pick information if you do that, to try to prove a point or disprove a point, or also just to overlook some really obvious things that had you thought about this in advance, you might have designed the study differently to actually look to get better answers for what people are asking. Well, the biggest thing people are asking, of course, is what's a way to run that's going to be safe, that's going to protect me from injury, that's going to let me do this for as long as I can, as enjoyably as I can, as healthily as I can. Maybe to do it better, maybe it's about running faster. 
Maybe it's not. But the big one is going to be about being able to run injury-free. We know that 50% of runners in shoes and 80% of marathoners in shoes, approximately, get injured every year. It's a pretty um, it's a pretty low bar to try to get over is can we improve that? But it's going to take a bunch of effort and a lot of time and frankly, a lot of money to put a study like this together, a longitudinal study that will examine very specific things about natural movement or barefoot running or barefoot walking or hiking or, you know, again, a lot of different things you could look at. A lot of time, effort, a lot of money. Well, the last part is why it hasn't been done yet. A lot of money. The people who would be interested in demonstrating that natural movement is better are, of course, people like me. Now, I'm not looking to prove that I'm right. I'm the first guy that if a long-term study was done well and effectively, it was well-controlled, well-designed, well, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, implemented, where the data was looked at appropriately, where we didn't throw out things that we didn't like or include extra things that we do. I mean, if it's all done well, people like me and the other people who are supporting natural movement, we would love to see that. Again, if it's all done really well and it doesn't support it, I'm the first guy to go, all right, not what we thought it is. Is there a there there? Let's take a look. Maybe, the, again, maybe what we studied isn't the most important thing. Again, there's a lot of points, but my, but my point, or a lot of ways of doing it, but my point is I'm open to the data. Where's the data? Well, again, people like me who would love to see the answer to this don't have the money to support a long-term study to, well, see what it reveals. The long-term part is also an issue because the amount of time that it would take for a really good study, maybe three years, maybe five years, maybe 10 years. There was a study done by Kirk Erickson, uh, University of Pittsburgh, I believe, where about elderly people and walking. And he found that elderly people who walked more than the ones who didn't walk retained more gray matter when they were looked at, their brains were looked at in an fMRI. And this was a nine-year study. I said to Kurt, I talked to him and I said, Kirk, I imagine, or imagine what it would have been like if those people, some of those people were walking barefoot instead of in shoes, because his idea was that it was the stimulation from walking that kept their brain going. And I basically said, what if you had more stimulation? He thought that was a compelling idea, but that was a multi-million dollar study that took nine years. Look, I'll admit it. I'm impatient. I don't want to wait that long. I'd, I mean, I'd love to get the info, but I don't want to wait that long. And again, we don't have the kind of cash that big shoe companies have. Now, this is another interesting point. The big shoe companies, why aren't they sponsoring the research? Because if they're so confident that what they're doing is good for you, they should want to sponsor it to prove once and for all that what they do can be helpful. Seems kind of obvious, except for the fact that, again, 50% of runners, 80% of marathoners in shoes get injured every year. So we can assume, perhaps, that they're not as confident as one might think. There's a panel discussion that I was on at the American College of Sports Medicine a couple of years ago. And I think if you go to zeroshoes.com slash ACSM, you can find that. If not, just go to zeroshoes.com and search for American College of Sports Medicine. You'll find it. But I think it's slash ACSM. Anyway, in that panel discussion, there was a guy from Adidas who said that they were trying to improve performance and reduce injuries. Guy from Brooks sitting right next to him said the same thing. And I think it was the guy from Adidas. And for those of you who are European or super cool or super dorky, um, yes, I know it's Adidas. Adidasler started the company. But anyway, so the Brooks and Adi guys were both saying they're trying to improve performance and reduce injury. But they also conceded that they don't have studies to back that up. Now, these are companies that have been around for 50 years, okay, or more. Actually, way more for some of them. What am I talking about? Adi's been around since the 
30s, if I'm remembering correctly. Long time. Brooks, less so, but around for a long time. Well, the guy from Adi, he said, well, we don't have these studies because they'd be very expensive. They would take a long time. And there'd be a lot of confounds. In other words, a lot of things that could interfere with getting good data. Well, yeah. Okay. It's true. Designing a good study is hard. Takes a while. Costs a bunch of money. But dude, if you could make a shoe that was scientifically proven to reduce injuries and be better than the shoe of the guy next to you, that's worth billions of dollars a year. Billions with a B. And you're telling me the only reason you haven't done it in the last 50 years is because it's really hard? Seems a little suspect to me. All right, but let's go back to proving or examining whether this whole barefoot thing is legit or not. How would you do that? Again, we don't have that big study. So we have to do what the religious archaeologists do. We have to look on the edge of the circle and look for the things that point in whatever direction and see, are they all pointing in the same direction or not? Well, if you go to PubMed, P-U-B-M as in Mary E-D, Publication Medical, I don't know, that's what it really stands for, PubMed. If you go to PubMed.com and search for minimalist shoes or barefoot shoes or barefoot running or some of the people who've done research on this, like Irene Davis from Harvard or uh, Daniel Lieberman from Harvard or Sarah Ridge from BYU or Isabel, I-S-A-B-E-L, Sacco, S-A-C-C-O, Isabel Sacco in Brazil. I'm going to bring up the neosteoarthritis thing. That's my reminder to do it because Isabel studied neosteoarthritis. You're going to find a whole bunch of research about natural movement and sometimes about footwear in particular, sometimes about barefoot, sometimes just about human beings and how we work. And if you look at that research, you're going to find a whole lot of things all pointing in the same direction towards the center. Now, you may find a couple things pointing away as well. So I'm going to come back to that, but let's talk about a few things pointing towards the center. Okay. The fundamental idea is that letting your body do what it's supposed to do is going to be good for you or should be good for you. Or another simple way of saying it is use it or lose it. If you don't let your body do what it's supposed to do, that's going to be problematic. We know that if you put a joint in a cast, if you immobilize a joint, if your arm is in a cast, for example, it gets weaker over time. Is weaker better than stronger? I would argue not. We know that bones, what makes them harder is actually having them get stressed so they get these little microfractures that heal and make them stronger. So if you support the bones so that they don't get any pressure on them, does that is that going to be good? Is that going to make them stronger or weaker over time? I would argue weaker. And there's research that shows this. If you look at Sarah Ridge's research on just walking in a minimalist shoe, created the same amount of improvement in foot strength as doing an actual foot exercise program. These are things that are pointing in the same direction. You can look at things, well, let's go to Isabel Sacco's research in neosteoarthritis. There's another bit of research prior to Isabel's. There's animal research that's relevant for human beings sometimes, where they've taken animals, I think rabbits in this case, and they basically hit them in the heel over and over and over. They subjected their relatively straight leg to a bunch of impact forces. And lo and behold, and how often do you get to say lo and behold? It's off, It's really, really pleasant. So I highly encourage you to find an excuse to use it. Lo and behold, they found that when you subject, and I think they might've done it in cows too, when you subject animals, animals' knees to forces like that, uh, repetitive forces that going that's going through the knee joint, they developed osteoarthritis. So it seems to demonstrate that large impact forces going through the joints can create osteoarthritis. Interesting thing to notice. Well, Isabel Sacco's research was what if we just take some elderly, I think it was only women, 
put them in a minimalist shoe and just tell them to walk around with the idea that when you don't have a bunch of cushioning or padding underneath you, you end up using the muscles, ligaments, and tendons of your body as the natural shock absorbers and springs they're supposed to be. Well, when you look at Isabel's research, what you see is that many of these women had a reduction in knee osteoarthritis. Now, were they measuring to see if these women were putting less force in the ground when they walked? No. But did they just measure, look for that one specific thing? Does this idea that you're going to walk with more spring in your step, if you will, better spring in your step, better shock absorber in your step, if that's the case, if we know that shock can create knee osteoarthritis, and in animal studies, getting rid of the shock can help reduce it, can we do the same kind of thing in human beings? We're not going to have subject them to a bunch of forces, but we know from other research that when you walk in a motion-controlled padded heel, padded elevated shoe, you actually do put a bunch of force in the ground. Actually, that brings us to another thing on the circle, our friend Christine Pollard, who researched cushioned shoes and found out that when you have a highly cushioned shoe, you don't put less force into the ground. Sometimes you put more force into the ground. And one theory about why is because your brain is always trying to feel something at the bottom of your feet to know how to control your body effectively and efficiently. And if it can't feel things, it might try to land harder just to get some feedback. All right. So point being, if you keep looking at all this research, and there's much, much more than I'm than we have time to get into, but again, start at PubMed, look for some of those people. It'll take you on a rabbit, uh, a nice little rabbit hole, an enjoyable rabbit hole, down to finding a whole bunch of stuff pointing towards the middle. Well, what about the stuff that's seemingly pointing away? Now, I'm going to suggest something about the stuff that's pointing away that you're actually going to want to do for the stuff that's pointing towards the middle too, which is read the actual studies. Read and see what they've actually looked at, what they actually did, what they actually say. I'm going to call out two, and I'm not trying to be obnoxious to a acquaintance of mine, someone whom I met a number of times, who I'm on the track with at track races whenever we have them this summer. We're not. And that's Roger Crum at the University of Colorado. Roger has a lab that's done a lot of research on running. He's a runner, so not too surprising he's interested in studying it. And Roger, one of his first studies, or not one of his first, one of the studies that he did when the whole question about barefoot versus shoes came out was exploring runners and their VO2 max, their ability to uptake and utilize oxygen. The idea is if you have a better VO2 max, well, let's just leave that alone for a second. I'll come back to that. Anyway, what he studied is what he referred to as accomplished barefoot runners. And pardon me, I don't know if he called them accomplished, but certainly he took people who he thought were good barefoot runners and he had them run in shoes versus barefoot. And what he found was that they were less efficient they had a lower VO2 max. They were using more energy, seemingly, when they were running barefoot than when they were in shoes. Well, it seems that that's proving that maybe barefoot isn't as good as you think, except for a couple of things. One, no one in the barefoot running world ever said that your VO2 max would be better if you were running without shoes. So it was kind of a red herring. People were studying something that no one ever made a claim about. So where'd that claim come from? I don't know. Or where'd the idea to study that come from? I don't know. But then there's another thing. So VO2 max is a proxy for a whole bunch of other things. I, have, I don't have a good VO2 max or not very high. My VO2 max is in the high 30s. There are marathon runners who are in the 70s and low 80s. That scale, it's hard to explain how different that is. But suffice it to say, it's no shock that I'm a sprinter and not a distance runner. I'm just not built for VO2 max. Now, but it's not just about your VO2 max. That's not the number one thing that determines your performance. If it were, then we would just line a bunch of people up at the beginning of a race, test their VO2 max, and hand out medals. So, and Roger eventually in a later study 
did say, yes, there's this improvement in VO2 max, and I'll say why in a second, but it doesn't necessarily equate to performance. So we got a study about something that's not really anything anyone ever claimed that's pointing out something that's not necessarily relevant. But more importantly, if you really dive into the study, there's something that you won't even be able to find in the study. And that is who was being studied. So according to Roger, it was accomplished barefoot runners. I said to Roger, I know all the barefoot runners in town. I'm one of the barefoot runners in town. And neither I nor anyone that I know has been in that lab, let alone been in that study. My suspicion, because I know a lot of the runners in town, is that what was being studied, or who were being studied, the people that were being studied, were very accomplished runners who do some barefoot training. And what I can assure you is running around the infield of a track or even running on a track for a little bit of time is not the same as just being a habitual barefoot runner, someone who has spent however much time it takes to be able to run on concrete for as long as you want, enjoyably, safely, without any problem, having fun while you're doing it. So who's being studied? So that's another thing that comes up. Diving deeper into some of these studies is important. So like, let's just talk about shoes versus shoes, for example. There's a study that Nike has done, or more accurately, Nike says there was an independent study that was done. They developed the study and they paid for the study, but it was performed by an independent lab. And it was about a new shoe they developed, the React Infinity Run, that they wanted to see if it reduced injuries compared to other shoes. Well, I'll cut to the chase and I'll cut to the way it's presented. Yes, it reduced injuries by 50%. Doesn't that sound great? But again, when you dive in, things look a little different. So they were testing the React Infinity Run against their best-selling motion-controlled shoe. And unfortunately, I don't remember the name of it right now. This was in a 12-week training period for a half-marathon training, half training program. It was lasted for 12 weeks, as I said. And the idea was, I think they just, they called an injury anything that would keep you out for at least three training sessions. So if we assume that there's, let's say, three or three to five a week, basically what that means is, did you really get injured within the first 10, 10 and a half, maybe 11 weeks? So let's call it a 10 to 11 week study. Well, it turns out that again, the Infinity Run, 50% fewer injuries than the other shoe, the other Nike shoe. Now, again, I don't remember if they said what kind of injuries, just something that took you out for a little while, which is a giant range of possibilities. But let's ignore that for a second. You have to look at the real numbers because the 50% number is deceptive. People in the React Infinity Run, about a little over 14%, almost 15% got injured during the study. The regular shoe, do the math, if that's 50% better, over 30% of the people in the best-selling motion control shoe got injured in a study they developed in a 10, 11-week period. Now, let's put this into an interesting context. If I, let's do the one in seven first. If I asked you to go to the same restaurant every night for a week for dinner, and let's say on, let's say on the last day, you got food poisoning, would you go back the next day to that restaurant? How long would it take for you to ever go back to that restaurant? Let's make it more fun. Let's say I asked you to go to that same restaurant just for three meals. One, you know, just breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Well, if you're in that best-selling motion control shoe where over 30% got injured in that 10, 11-week period, that's like saying, go to that same restaurant, and if you got food poisoning during one of those meals, would that be okay? Would that be acceptable? Would you go back to that restaurant? Eh, I'm a little iffy. So I'm not trying to dismiss any of the data points on the circle that are pointing in other directions than in. I'm just saying, 
for both of them, whether you're looking in or out, look carefully and see, well, what's being done. See if the research is good. And if you don't think you're qualified to determine if the research is good, ask some people. Ask me. Ask a bunch of other people. Ask the people who've done the research. Talk to them. They're very happy to talk about what they're doing because they're very passionate about what they're doing. There is some research that seemingly points in that I don't think is great. Maybe it's pointing kind of tangential or not quite in the same direction. But the other thing is this. What's the... hmm, How many things are pointing in? How many things are pointing out? What's the preponderance of evidence showing? If there's one or two things that are pointing in in a different direction, that doesn't mean that everything else is complete crap and should be ignored. If there's a preponderance of things on that circle pointing in the same direction or close to that same direction... That's really, really good information. That's giving you confidence, the kind of confidence that people sometimes accuse me of having and then calling it arrogance, to say that natural movement seems like it's a really, it's the better idea. And, you know, there's another kind of evidence that you got to throw in, and that's anecdotal evidence, which is basically your own personal story. Now, here's where things get really fun. Your own personal story may be completely meaningless, or it might be really meaningful. We don't know. What I can say is one story doesn't really say a lot. One bit of anecdotal information says very, very little. Your particular story, whether it was good or bad, says very little when we're talking about the value of anecdotal data. But when you have a lot of it, a preponderance of it, given spontaneously, given without cause or any benefit for doing so, then it becomes an interesting data point, something that is worth considering. Your own thing, here's one of the things about humans, your own anecdotal information, the reason that it's so problematic or not important on its own is because humans, we have this one habit. We extract, we do a couple things. We extrapolate our experience and assume that everybody is going to have the same experience we do. It's a natural thing. It's often completely not true. And we often misrepresent the causes of our own experience. So I... How do I want to put this? I'll tell it this way. My first major barefoot run, I ended up with a big blister on the ball of my left foot. And if you haven't read the story of that, zeroshoes.com slash blister. But my right foot was fine. Now, what I've learned in the last 12, 13 years is many people in that situation would say, oh, see, this barefoot running thing is horrible for you because I got a blister. I, on the other hand, thought, hey, how come my right foot's fine? And hey, my left leg is the one that gets injured more often. So many people in the situation I was in would say that barefoot running is bad because they got a blister. Many people in the situation I was in might say barefoot running is bad and they might not have actually been barefoot. They might have been in a shoe that was advertised as barefoot, but actually, according to the research, is nothing of the sort. Another interesting thing to look at. Point being that our own experience is often misunderstood, misrepresented, and misappropriated to a bunch of other people. Your own experience is something that's important to you. I'm not discounting it or dismissing it, but I'm saying as points on a circle, what we really want to look for when we're looking at anecdotal information is a lot of it and analyzing a lot of it, not just single points. Again, in a way, the anecdotal stuff is like a separate circle where we have to look at the points on the circle and see how many are pointing in, how many are pointing out, why they're pointing out, why they're pointing in, and really use all of that to come to a conclusion. So all that said, I have no idea what what shoes or probably sandals Jesus wore or Buddha wore or Muhammad wore or Moses wore or Zoroaster or Odin or Zeus or anyone you can think of historically where we don't have a picture of them in those shoes. 
I'm not that concerned, frankly. I'm mostly concerned about what we're doing now to help people have an experience that they find useful, enjoyable. Oh boy, what else is there? Useful and enjoyable. Those are the, the two most essential ones I can think of. And hopefully we're helping you do that just from what's happening in these podcasts, the information you're getting. And of course, if you try zero shoes or any other truly minimalist shoe from doing that as well. And of course, if you go barefoot from doing that also, because this is part of our movement movement, helping people discover and or rediscover how natural movement is the obvious, better, healthy choice the way natural food is. Again, do I have one scientific piece of proof for that? No. Do I have what I consider a preponderance of evidence for that? Absolutely. If you want to try and prove me wrong, I'm all ears. If you know someone who thinks everything I just said for the last 33 minutes is complete crap, bring them on the show. Let's have a conversation about this. That would be super fun. So if you have any recommendations for anyone to be on the show for or any comments or any anything, just drop me an email. Move, M-O-V-E, move at jointhemovementmovement.com. Again, if you want to find previous episodes or how to find us all over the interwebs, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com share and like, give us a thumbs up, hit the bell if you're on YouTube, all those things that you know how to do so that if you want to be part of the tribe, you know how to subscribe. And most importantly, thanks for listening. I can't wait to see what's next. Go out, have fun, live life feet first. You've been listening to the Movement Movement Podcast with host Stephen Sashin. Remember to join the tribe and subscribe at jointhemovementmovement.com.